This morning and during the Sundays of Lent, we are going to be uh, preaching through the first letter of St. Peter. We introduced it very briefly uh, in our Ash Wednesday meditation, but this morning we are going to uh, properly begin to uh, make our way through this epistle. It's written against the, the backdrop of persecution. Uh, so it is an epistle for a time of crisis, time of uncertainty. And above all, it is an epistle written to give us hope and confidence for the future. Most likely, the, the first letter of Peter was written uh, from Rome in the early years of the decade, starting in 60 AD. Um, probably under the persecution that uh, originated with the Emperor Nero, and we know that that persecution, from history, we know that that persecution reached its peak in the years uh, 62 to 64 AD. And the letter, as uh, we'll hear in a moment when we read the salutation of the letter, is written to churches in the northern part of uh, Asia Minor, which today is known to us as the country of Turkey, but in Peter's day it was divided into a number of Roman provinces. These provinces were on, on the north side of the Taurus Mountains. St. Paul, on his second missionary journey, uh, that would have been around 50 AD, so maybe 10, a dozen years before the occasion of the writing of this letter, uh, Paul and Silas, who is uh, referenced at the end of 1 Peter, Paul and Silas and Timothy were uh, on a missionary journey. They visited the churches that Paul and Barnabas had established on his first journey. Uh, and as they went west through Asia Minor, on the southern part of Asia Minor, they came to a place where they, they turned north. Uh, and they went north uh, alongside the province of Asia, which is on the far west of Asia Minor. And they got to, um, they got to a place called Mysia, and from there, Paul wanted to go to Bithynia. In other words, he wanted to go into the northern uh, territories of Asia Minor, the, the northern Roman provinces, but we're told that the spirit of Jesus, in Acts chapter 16, verse 7, the spirit of Jesus would not let him. And at that uh, particular point, he had a vision of a Macedonian man who, who said, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so the missionary team uh, went uh, across the... A GNC there, and uh, landed in what is now Greece. So the first uh, missionary trip into Europe that we know of. But somehow, and we're, we're not told how, we're not uh, told the circumstances, in those intervening years, the gospel went to these places, into these territories. Um, and Peter came to have a connection with these churches and also with Silas who went with Paul on his second missionary journey. And if you go to the very end of 1 Peter, you'll find that uh, Peter says, I've written to you through Silas, or Silvanus, he's referred to as in the letter, the same person. So uh, we understand when we read 1 Peter that, that this is the mind of the apostle, and it's been being rendered to us uh, by Silas and how much of the word choice is, I'm sure that Silas did more than just take dictation. Uh, but uh, 
we, we trust that however that worked out, uh, that the Holy Spirit is the author and that the Lord speaks to us through these uh, very elegantly uh, framed and powerfully written words. I'm going to be reading the, up from verse 1 through 21, which is a lengthy section. But, and if you have a, a Bible handy and, and want to turn and follow along, that would probably be helpful to you. Uh, but there are th- three parts that we'll be looking at. The first is the salutation, and then the uh, ascription of praise, and then the first exhortation. So chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So that's the the greeting. And now... Uh, something that you find in a lot of epistles, especially Paul's epistles, but there is an ascription of praise to God, uh, an opening, uh, almost a doxology, if you will, blessing God. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now we come to the exhortations. And there is, of course, a strong uh, connection between the exhortation and the ascription of praise. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember in the description of praise, uh, Peter says, uh, the the first thing that he says when he ascribes a blessing to God is that God has uh, caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
So verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. May God, may God bless the reading of his holy word. This morning, uh, as we enter into a series that we're putting under the umbrella of standing firm, let's look at the theme of standing firm in hope. If you go to the very end of 1 Peter, you'll find that uh, Peter says the, the very last lines he says before telling that other people say hi. He says, I have written to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So that his whole letter, he says, is an encouragement and a testimony to what the true grace of God is. And he says, stand firm in this true grace. In our text today in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is he's preparing a church and its leaders, its shepherds, if you will, to face a challenge to their faith, a crisis of faith, which in their setting takes the form of persecution. He places hope in the forefront of the mindset by which we are able to endure or to stand firm. So he, uh, we, are, we are born again to a living hope. And then he says, you know, hitching up your, the trousers, if you will, of your mind. In other words, getting ready for, to work, ready to put your mind to work. He says, uh, put your mind to work in this way. Set your hope on the grace to be revealed. At the, at the, to be brought to you at the revealing of Christ. I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to call your attention to the structure of the text. And so there's a sense in which I'm calling on you to uh, prepare your minds for action. Uh, this is the word of God, and uh, it, is, uh, it is richly rewarding to dig into it. I'm going to dig in a little bit, and if you want to dig deeper, we can do that later. But the first thing I'd like to, you to note about the text that we've read this morning is the connection between the salutation and the section, the concluding part of the section that, that I just read. Note that he greets these uh, elect exiles who are chosen by the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient 
and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. So when you think, first of all, just in passing, when you think about being about election, election is election is certainly unto everlasting life. Uh, St. Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. So there is a, there is a, a chain from, from being God's elect to, to glory. And it's unbreakable because it is of the work of God. But there, there are things in between that uh, call upon us that... Uh, point to the, uh, the, the means that God uses uh, to bring the elect to glory and to use the elect for his own glory. And notice that these two things are obedience and uh, being sprinkled with the blood of Christ. So if you, if you look at verse 14 that we read, or that just follows on the exhortation to... Um, to set our minds on hope. Verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. So he says, you've been elect unto obedience. And then he says, but as the one who called you is holy, you are to be holy in all your conduct, sanctified in the spirit unto obedience. And then in verse 17, uh, again, you have the uh, notion of obedience comes in. Obedient children, uh, child, children of whom? If you appeal, verse 17, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially, so we are obedient to the Father, uh, he says, conduct yourselves in reverence during the time of your exile because you were redeemed. How? Not with, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb. So we were elect unto obedience and we were elect uh, to be saved through the shed blood of Jesus, the sprinkling of his blood, precious blood. Think of, uh, there, there are a lot of gospel songs, a lot of hymns, for example, that have that phrase, precious blood. There's an old, you know, kind of thump, thump, thump chorus, power, 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 power wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. And probably far more significantly than the songs, one could think of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the uh, early Reformation catechisms that says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And later on in the catechism, there's a question, why do you call Jesus your Lord? It's, and the answer is, uh, because not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with his precious blood, he has bought me body and soul to be his very own. So just to call your attention to the structure here, because this is... This is elegantly written. This is very uh, polished uh, rhetorical uh, writing. So you have the salutation to people who are uh, elect unto obedience, uh, to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And as he wraps up this 
initial section, he reminds them that they are to be obedient children, to be holy as God is holy, and that uh, the way that they should live their lives should be one of, of reverence, reverent fear, because they have been purchased. They have, uh, they have come to obtain salvation at a high, high price. God has, God has paid a lot. God has paid a lot to redeem us from a way of life where we had no hope, where we lived in futility, where the character, character of our lives was one of uh, former ignorance. From that way, which was hopeless, we have been given a living hope by the resurrection of Christ who rises from a death in which he poured out his precious blood for us. First Peter is um, just full of exhortation. And un unlike, for example, Paul's letters, which tend to be, I mean, Paul's letters open with an inscription of praise, but then you maybe have several chapters of doctrine. And then after the doctrine is made clear, uh, Paul will launch into exhortation. But Peter, he just has the inscription of praise, and then he, then he starts running with these exhortations, imperatives, do this, but it's not, you know, it's not do this, do this, do this, do this. It's, uh, it, it's given to encouragement. It's like, a, uh, it's, it's like a coach rallying his team. It's like a, a commander rallying his troops. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a parent uh, urging a, a child uh, not to be discouraged, not to give up. It's this kind of exhortation. And so the, the very first one, as I've noted, is the exhortation to set our hope on the grace to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. And he urges them to prepare their minds in such a way that uh, they would keep their hope directed to the day of the appearing of Christ uh, when he comes. He also in, in the uh, ascription of praise, gives them compelling reason to set their hope there. Do, do they have any reason to be confident that their hope will come to pass? And in, in the ascription of praise at the very beginning, he gives them uh, two very uh, strong reasons for that. He speaks of their, uh, in verse, uh, verse 5, he talks about being guarded. There, there are, they are being guarded, and previous to that, their inheritance is being protected or guarded. So uh, as they look at, at what is going to be granted to them at the, the appearing, the revealing of Christ, uh, they will be receiving an inheritance. And, and that inheritance is almost synonymous with their hope. What is, what is the content? What is the substance of their hope? They have an inheritance. They have a place. They have a place in the kingdom of God, in the fellowship of Christ that can never be taken away from them, where they will uh, dwell for all eternity. They will, they, will be, uh, they will be rooted and grounded. They will have a place to belong forever. And, and it will be glorious, beyond expression, beyond imagining, beyond uh, what we, we can begin to fathom. 
but they have an inheritance. And he says, this inheritance is being guarded. So what you're setting your hope on, it's being guarded for you. And then in, in verse 5, he says, you are being guarded. So, so the inheritance itself is being guarded by God in heaven. And you are being guarded. And, and the word there is a different word in, in, uh, in Greek. It's also the word that's used for uh, miners who are, and uh, minor children, not people who dig in the ground. But uh, minor, ch- minor children who uh, are, they have an inheritance ahead of them. And in, in the meantime, there is a guardian or there's someone who looks after them and steers them in that direction. That's, that's one of the, the, the nuances of the word that's used there about us being protected. Uh, we're being, we're being uh, prepared. Uh, we're being kept safe uh, until that time we come into our inheritance. So our, our, hope, our hope is uh, profoundly secure. The content of our hope is being protected. We are being protected against the day that our our hope will be granted to us when Christ comes again. Just uh, to anticipate uh, before I I move on to speak a little more clearly and and at length about our hope, not too long, but uh, hope... uh, Hope comes up again in First Peter, after chapter 1. It comes up again in, in chapter 3, probably most famously, if you remember, you know, if you ever memorized Bible verses, especially about witnessing, the, probably one of the more famous verses from First Peter, chapter 3, is verse 15, where in, he's, there he's talking about the, the impending threat of suffering, He says, uh, even if you suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. So so do this, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a reason, to give a defense. The the Greek word is uh, apologia, to give an apology. But apology doesn't mean I'm sorry. It means it's a... Uh, it's, the word means to give a defense, to give a reason to those who ask you concerning the hope that is in you. So when you think about, whoa, what, what does it mean to witness? Uh, do, I, do I know all the facts of the gospel? Well, the, the more basic question is, what do you hope for? Do you, do you have a hope for your inheritance? Do you have a confidence that uh, that you will spend eternity in the uh, you know, a, a treasure that God has given just for you to be in his fellowship. Peter says, talk to people about that. Talk about your hope. And one, and the, one of the, the other fascinating place in 1 Peter where the word hope, the, other, the one other place where the word hope is used is in reference to the, the wives. Because there's, he gives, you know, he gives some guidance to people in the household to, uh, husbands and wives and slaves, and, and most of it to our way of thinking and, and certainly to our culture's way of thinking. And people might, the things that he says to the wives, I think even a lot of Christian women today would say, well, that just sounds kind of funky to me. Uh, so, you know, the being submissive to their husbands. But uh, 
in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he talks to the wives, he says, uh, if, if you want to look good, he says, work on, your inner, work on the hidden beauty of your heart. Because that's how, uh, in former days, that's how the women who, who hoped in God, that's how the women who hoped in God adorned themselves. And by the way, uh, if, you, if you look at all the epistles, for conversion material. You know, how is, it, how is it that people become Christians? There are a lot of conversion narratives in Acts, but you get into the epistles, there's not many references to, oh, do this and people will come to be Christians. Here we're told to give a reason to those who ask us, but the one place that you find in the epistles where somebody does something and somebody else is converted is that the wives being respectful to their husbands, and they are one without a word. These, these wives who put their hope in God. Just kind of passing remark, but, and we'll, we'll get to that later. But it's, it's around this theme of hope, and you see why it's so essential. Uh, put your hope in God and see who wants to know about it and see who's affected by it. Hope is key to facing a crisis of faith. Hope is, hope is certainly the key to facing persecution. So let's just, in wrapping up, let's try to get a little clarity about what is hope. We all hope the weather will warm up. <laughs> um, some of us hope, our, your, some of you hope your kids get into a good preschool. Some of you hope, hope your kids will get into a grad, good graduate school. Hope is in some way, hope is a desire that the future will be good. Sometimes, though, when we speak of hope, it's really just a strong wish. I really do wish the snow would melt and go away. Uh, and I kind of know in the back of my mind it will. Someday I'll be longing for one of these cold days. But biblical hope is more than just strong desire. Biblical hope is certainly much more than wishful thinking. Biblical hope is confident hope. It rests on as, and is inseparable from faith. The writer to the Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance or the substance of things hoped for, the persuasion of, not, of things not seen. And we, uh, by God's grace, have been born again to a living hope. This, this kind of hope is not something that you can just uh, stir up. This kind of hope is not something that you can uh, create by positive thinking. Like the used to be a long time ago, there was the little train that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Or there was the power of positive thinking with Norman Vincent Peale and uh, Robert Schuller after him. But we are born again to this deep confidence that God has, a, God has a glorious future for us. And we know that by faith. We know that by faith. We are being protected by God's power. And in Peter's mind, persecution is an opportunity to purify this faith and hope so that at the appearing, when Christ appears, it will be a way of um, rendering glory and honor to him who has been so good to us. But it's hard, it's hard to, 
it's, I think the great challenge of this passage is to get our minds to that horizon. The great challenge of that passage is to, to lift up our hearts and minds from this uh, workaday world and what's coming tomorrow and what's coming down the pike as far as we can look toward the horizon to, to live with this orientation to the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'll, I'll close with uh, a, a passage from John Calvin. Uh, in, in the third book of the Institutes, uh, chapters 6 through 10, Calvin writes a section on the Christian life. It's sort of his practical advice, you know, summarize how Christians are to live for us. Uh, that's what Calvin is addressing. And it's actually been separated out and you can buy it. It's called the Golden Book, Golden Booklet of the Christian Life by John Calvin. But it, it's really just chapters six through 10 of the third book of the Institutes. The first part is introduction to the Christian life. And then he has self-denial, bearing the cross. And third, meditating on the future life. And then the last part of the uh, Golden Book is the, the use of this present life. But here's how he starts the book on the section, the chapter on meditating on the future life. He says, whatever be the kind of tribulation with which we are afflicted, we should always consider the end. That means the goal of it to be that we may be trained to despise the present. That's why, that's why people aren't always so excited about reading John Calvin. But... Uh, uh, he lives, he lives in a time in history when cities are regularly visited by the plague. He was a man who was exiled from his own country. From, he was a Fr French. He was from France. He was kicked out of France because of his uh, he embraced the Reformation. He went to Geneva and was run out of there after he made the church mad at him. Uh, ended up in Strasbourg and pastored a congregation of refugees. But so he, you know, he, he does have a kind of a, a dim view <laughs> at times of this present life, although you need to read the, the last part as well, which, which I won't do this morning. But he, he says, For since God well knows how strongly we are inclined by nature to a slavish love of this world, in order to prevent us from clinging too strongly to it, he employs the fittest reason for calling us back and shaking off our lethargy. Every one of us indeed would be thought to aspire and aim at heavenly immortality during the whole course of, of his life. He says, you know, you would imagine that this would be what Christians set their hearts on. But he says, for we, we would be ashamed uh, in no respect to excel the lower animals whose condition would not at all be inferior to ours had we not a hope of immortality beyond the grave. But when you attend to the plans, wishes, and actions of each, you see nothing in them but the earth. Hence our stupidity, our minds being dazzled with the glare of wealth, power, and honors that they can see no farther. First Peter is written to people that are going to be up against it, are up against it. And he says that if you're going to get through this, you need to lift your gaze higher. You need to lift your gaze higher than, 
your sense of security in this present world. Your greatest security is yet to come. What God has prepared for you is inestimably good. Get your gaze there. Get your gaze there and then live day by day. And there's no no easy path to do that, but I'll just mention two things that I think can help. Uh, One, get familiar with the prophets because the prophets are, reading the prophets is a lot like reading John Calvin in many ways because there is a lot of darkness and doom and gloom, but almost all the prophets end on a very high note. They end on a picture of of, uh, the glorious day of the Lord and what happens when God's salvation comes. They they end on a picture of of the reign and, and the kingdom of God. And the other thing I would say is to get out in God's creation, you know, turn off your screen and get out and see what God has made because the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the firmament shows his handiwork. Uh, all, of, all of his uh, glorious work is out there in the snow with the sun shining on it. Uh, look at those things and in them you get a glimpse of the glory of God. And from that glimpse of the glory of God in creation, it, then turn your hearts and minds to, to imagine the glory that may await us because of the redeeming work of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, we confess that we are, are deeply in love with this world. And though we often wonder how people who don't know the Lord can get through life without any hope, uh, most of the time we reserve that hope till, the, till grief comes and, and we're thankful that we know that uh, we go to heaven when we die. And yet our gaze is very much here on this life. Lord, we do not know what the future brings, but we know that you will test and that you will refine our faith. And so help us to do the, the, the work of the mind and the work of the heart that will lift our eyes uh, higher and farther out to the horizon of the Lord's appearing. We pray in his name. Amen.